Well, good morning, Mercy Road. How are we doing today? All right. It is beautiful outside, you know, for us, for, for Minnesota winter. And I'm so glad you chose to join us in worship. If you are visiting or, or new or newer, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor. Now, I know I said we were done with this series, Don't Move the Lampstand. But actually, here's the thing. Any good sermon or sermon series really requires three elements. The what the so what, and the now what. And I think the hardest part of those three pillars is the now what, the application. Because it's easy to access information in our age, right? We all have Wi-Fi. There's lots of good Bible teachers out there. And it's somewhat easy to, to really get excited and passionate about information from God's word that changes our perspective, the so what. But the application that is hard. And so the more I was talking with uh, Pastor Tom, who I work with to write these messages and some other people in our church, I feel like this series is missing some of the now what. So in the last two messages, we're going to look at application. Now, if you're just joining us, the series is on the purpose of the church. And we've looked at the beginning of the Bible, Exodus 25 says that in the tent of meeting, the portable worship tent that went with God's people as they left slavery into the promised land, there was all this symbolic furniture in there that God told Moses to, to put in there. And they all had meaning, all the furniture. One of them was a menorah, not a Pixar lamp, but for our purposes, this works. And it was called the lampstand, and it was directly placed by a table, an acacia table, ornate with gold. Ours will have to do here, this little cocktail table. And on the table, it was called the table of the presence. There was the bread of the presence. And this was bread that was to remind God's people that God would always provide for them and that he was their daily sustenance, if you will. Now, fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelations chapter 1 and 2, we're told that the lampstand actually has a deeper symbolic meaning. It is meant to symbolize the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And the church's job is to be positioned in such a way where the light of our gatherings and of our individual lives and of our efforts and plans illuminates Jesus who said he was the bread of life, the bread of presence himself. And so we have a choice as a church and as individual Christians to keep the, the point, the light, on Jesus or to kind of shine it on ourselves or other things. Now, we tend to romanticize the early church, and so we've been looking at the book of Acts and looking at all the miraculous things that happened as the Holy Spirit came and lives were transformed, and people were being rescued, and they were gathering in homes, and they were doing community and life together, and everything was awesome. And yet, by chapter 5 and 6 of the book of Acts, you do start to see some of this behavior where the lampstand is being moved. And so today, we're going to talk about what happens when we move the lampstand. What are the consequences? Oh, we got bread breakers. Um, and so as we ask that question, we'll get that up on the slides if you would like to follow along in your smartphone or your Bible, we are in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to warn you, this is a heavy scripture text, and this is an exception to how God behaves to people, not the norm, not the rule, because this is, this is just an intense period. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. I'll just stop for a moment. 
what has happened just before this part of scripture is that the early Christians were voluntarily selling off extra pieces of land and extra pieces of property so that all the Christians, the new followers of Jesus who had responded to this message of grace, could make the journey and do life with them together. They saw a need and they met a need. And specifically, right before this, a man named Barnabas sold off a very big, expensive, important piece of property. And rather than just seeing a need of an individual, he laid it right at the apostles' feet. He said, I trust you enough to, to distribute this. You might see needs that I don't see. And so it was kind of this moving, impressive act of generosity coming from a pure motive. But it's important to note, at no point was Barnabas told he had to do that, nor was Ananias or his wife Sapphira told. So what they've done is they see Barnabas, and then they say, I'm going to do the same thing. They also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So do you see what he's doing? He's trying to make it look as if he's doing exactly what Barnabas did just this radical, breathtaking act of generosity for the wider community. But he kind of wants his cake and eat it too, right? He's holding it back. There's some deception there. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? This is an important part. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? As if to say, no one said you even had to sell this. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have kept part of it and given part of it. There's no law here. We're not, you know, communists or anything. We're just, this is all voluntary. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? He's saying, nobody made you do this. And you've deceived us. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, this is an intense part, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. We're not going to go into it, but uh, about three hours later in the narrative, his wife strolls in and basically says, hey, Did you like the gift that we gave? And Peter said, yeah, was that the full amount of the property? Oh, absolutely. And then she falls down dead. And so it's this radical, staccato-like moment in what was a beautiful symphony where all of a sudden it's just this ugly note and people are like, what just happened? And why is God being so severe? The text doesn't suggest that Peter killed her. There wasn't like capital punishment for, for giving in the wrong way. But it, it's like they bumped into a live wire, something that was so holy and precious and good. And a lot of scholars point to the fact that in the temple, in the Old Testament, there were certain things like the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's salvation and his presence that were so holy that like a, a priest is helping move it one day and it wobbles and he reaches out to steady it and he just, boom, he just falls dead. And people are like, what in the world? And there's examples, not a lot of examples, contrary to what a lot of skeptics think. God is not this angry, wrathful God who's ready to just get you at any moment. In fact, the majority, the vast majority of the time, the way that God operates towards human beings is with 
almost radical, extreme grace, where some of us have been on the other end and we've said, why don't you judge that person or why don't you bring more justice to this injustice? And, And it's like God oftentimes spares us from the consequences or lets us experience much gentler consequences for sin and rebellion in our life. And ultimately in the cross, he takes on the cosmic eternal consequences onto himself. But in this moment, the church is growing and thriving, and a lot of scholars think it represents the temple. It's as if God is saying, okay, if this new church, this movement of Jesus followers is now really functioning as the new temple of God, there is a sense in which we need to remember God is holy and good and pure and in a sense even dangerous in the kind of way that fire can be dangerous if you don't know how to properly use it. Fire can also be wonderful and we need it to live. And electricity can be dangerous if you don't know how to use it. But, but none of us would rather not have a power grid, would we? And so they bump into the live wire of God's holiness. And it's as if God is saying, what is happening here will ruin what I have planned for human beings. You can't move the lampstand in this way or there will be consequences. And so there is this reverential awe that runs through the whole community. So back to our question, what happens when we, when we take the focus off Jesus and when we move the lampstand? Just two points I'd like to make. The first is this. When the lampstand gets moved, Christians begin serving and doing good to attain power and status. In other words, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not really greed. And maybe you grew up in a church where money was always the thing. And it's hard to even read through the book of Acts because the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, seems to talk a lot about money. If that's you, just take a breath. We can work with your church PTSD, right? And just acknowledge that any beautiful, effective movement, institution, organization requires resources and money to to move. Luke is a realist, and so he does write about this at times. And he writes about it, I think, because if we're honest... Money, more than almost anything else, has the possibility to corrupt people and our motives and our heart and break apart families. Some of you have been at the wrong end of this. You had this great family, and then mom or dad or both passed away, and now there's, oh, distribution of money, and the will isn't very clear. And it's interesting how people who are just embracing each other at a funeral with tears and love and affection are now getting pretty nasty. Luke is a realist, and he gets this, and so he's talking about this, and he's reporting history, and money is in the mix for sure, but it's not the point of this passage. Another way to say that is God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He wants you to be free from the slavery that money can create. He wants you to enter into this beautiful movement of following him and showing other people who Jesus is and letting that change every aspect of our lives together. And so if it's not about money and greed, and it's clear that Ananias and Sapphira could have sold this property and kept it all for themselves, and God would still love them and let them be a part of the mission, and they could have kept any ratio for themselves, Luke doesn't even tell us how much it is. It's like Luke doesn't really care that much about the money. It's not the money. It's the motive. It's the deception. It's the deception. It's this idea that they saw Barnabas being radically generous and and they said, aha, in this new movement of followers of Jesus, 
We talk about love and kindness and the Holy Spirit. It seems like if you want to climb the ladder of power and prestige, popularity, status, this is a good way to do it. And so we're going to give the appearance that it's all about the movement, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about the needs of other people while still, you know, having a healthy cut on the side. And they just don't need to know about that. And God is saying, no. Isn't it true that when you see people deceiving others in the Christian community, and that goes public in, in the form of a big moral failure, that, maybe more than any other thing, hurts the movement of God? God, God knows this, and he says, no, we have to live with integrity here. It's not about the money, but do not live in constant deception. And so he pulls the movement back. He says, no, pull the light of the church back on shining on what it was meant to shine. So this begs the question for us, am I trying to look like Jesus to impress other people rather than actually be like Jesus? Some of us, if we're honest, we're skeptics. We're not yet at the point of belief. And part of the reason we're there and we just kind of are in a flying pattern around the airport of, of accepting Jesus and we never seem to land the plane is because we just keep seeing people and it seems to us that they're more interested in appearing holy than being holy. They're more interested in looking loving and kind and, and good-hearted than actually pursuing transformation into becoming loving and kind and good-hearted. And that bothers us, and we don't want to be like them. And so for every person that seems genuine, we see somebody who seems hypocritical, and we're just not sure about that. Well, you're, you're, you're tapping into a natural phenomenon of what happens when the lampstand is moved. When it moves, Christians begin serving and doing good to attain power and status. In the late 1800s hundreds in India, uh, in the Hindu culture, if a woman lost her husband and she became a widow, she was expected to do one of two things, jump on the funeral pyre and commit suicide and die with her dead husband. Or if she wasn't strong enough to do that, she could stick around for the rest of her life but then she was just expected to wither away in lament and mourning, and even her direct family members would stop supporting her financially. It was all baked into the wheel of samsara and Hinduism and the cycles of rebirth and the casting system, and it was part of the Hindu religion. And when the British came on the scene and they started to run India, they said, whoa, time out. <laughs> um, we're going to definitely stop forcing people to commit suicide when their husband dies. <laughs> And even this form of wasting away for the rest of your life, that, no. So the law changed in the late 1800s where women, for the first time, could remarry after their husband died. What the British didn't expect was the very odd behavior that followed from these Indian widows. You see, what they would do is to attract a new spouse in this culture is they basically entered into a competitive form of outgrieving one another. And so when your husband dies, you're sad, and that makes sense, but then it just never stopped. So they would, you know, hurt themselves, lacerate themselves. They'd go without food. They would just try to just be over the top in their mourning to prove to any prospective new mate that they kind of understand the cultural importance of basically being brought to dust and nothing when the husband dies. Isn't that an interesting thing? I'm, I'm glad that's not how we operate in this culture. 
But it was so culturally ingrained, you see, that that's how it was supposed to do. That's what happened, and it still happens in parts of India today. What, why do I share that? I think that there are people and places all, in every context where we fall into this. What started out with a good motivation to serve or to offer our gift turns into a way to manipulate other people towards something we want. Are we falling into that? Are you falling into that? Secondly, what happens when we take the focus off Jesus when we move the lampstand? The enemy tempts us to misuse our greatest strength and gift. You know, I know a lot of people who do not believe in Jesus think the idea of the devil is superstitious and um, just kind of outdated. What's interesting, though, is the same people who would dismiss anyone who believes in demonic activity or forces oftentimes are people who insist that we need to be tolerant and inclusive of a variety of worldviews. If you completely dismiss the idea of demonic supernatural personal intelligence called Satan and his demons, if you dismiss that outright and say everyone who ever believes in that is superstitious, know that you are single-handedly judging the majority of world history because the majority of people who have lived on planet Earth believe that there is some form of demonic forces out there. And we're told not to look for the devil under every rock and blame the devil for everything and his demons, but also not to completely have an arrogant attitude like there is no evil or devil. And Christian theologians put it this way, the three things that make world, the world miserable and painful are the world, which is a, a system broken by sin, the flesh, that's the rebellion inside every one of us, even the, the sweethearts among us, and the devil. And so together, in some form or fashion, there is a force trying to thwart what God is trying to do, namely redeem and restore this world and be in relationship with his children. And it's like Luke, the author of Acts, and Luke, Luke Acts, is, is insightfully noticing that what's happening in chapter 5 and 6 at this part of the story is the, the devil, whether that's the devil or his demonic legions or whatever, they see an opening. And even in this day, it's as if Luke is saying, beware of this principle. If we do not keep our lives focused on Jesus, our gatherings focused on Jesus, the point of church focused on Jesus, the enemy will tempt us to misuse not our greatest weakness, but our greatest strength, our greatest gift. I mean, think about it. What did Ananias and Sapphira bring to the table? Well, they were wealthy. In an age where most people thought about Will I have enough money to eat for the rest of the week and feed my kids? They, they have all this extra land and property. What, what an asset in the ancient world. That is kind of what they brought to the table. Some of you are in a similar boat. You're providers. You, you feel when you talk to your, your children like a personal ATM machine, right? You just constantly are, oh, here's a Nintendo Switch, and here's this, and da 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 and what else do you need? And yet, you know deep down that God has blessed you to leverage those resources strategically to advance his kingdom so that other people will see who Jesus is. And that was what they brought to the table. And it's interesting that that is where the enemy goes after. You would think they'd go after the weakness, right? I remember, you know, I was in the military, and when I was in basic combat training, they taught us about 
the rank that we wore and how specifically officers and NCO ranks used to be shiny, you know, so you could see who you were dealing with and you could salute accordingly. And then in Vietnam, and even in some cases in World War II as well, they started to realize that this was a big problem because the snipers would, would just look for the shiny rank and they would know that it was a high-ranking officer with a lot of authority and they would, they would immediately kill the in some ways, the strongest of the soldiers' strength because they're directing all the other soldiers. And, and you sh strike the shepherd and the, the sheep scatter. And so they changed the rank to make it a very subdued, kind of like a flat paint version, which made it very difficult as a private first class in basic training because you're squinting at these people and you're like, ah. And sometimes you'd salute the wrong person and the right person. But, but that was never lost on me that... In, in modern warfare, we've figured out that if you want to win, you don't hit people where they're weakest, you hit people where they're strongest. This is not to suggest that the enemy is not pleased to come after your weaknesses and shame you with your, your hurts and habits and hang-ups. He will, but that's intuitive. What's less intuitive is the idea that he would take the thing that you do best, the thing that you bring to the table the most clearly, and he would go right after that. And if you think about it, isn't that how you bring down something that's very hard to bring down? He goes after their ability to be generous and wealthy. A few years ago in Haiti, uh, a horrific news story came out that a leading humanitarian organization had, had found out that a number of the humanitarian aid workers who were deployed to Haiti, who have been deployed all over the world in, in terrible, storm-torn, war-torn places and had done a lot of good. But in Haiti, they were found guilty of bribing and conditioning young women and girls with the aid services that they could provide in exchange for sexual services. And there was this sense in which it was like, how in the world could these do-gooder types, these people who have really made their life's calling to go help people who are marginalized and poor and broken and hungry, use the very resources that they're supposed to bring as a bargaining chip for sexual favors? And there was just this national righteous outcry. And we wonder, how do people use the very best of what they have been called by God to do to hurt other people. Some of you have been hurt by people in the church. Maybe it was a, a leader or a pastor who was just a fantastic listener and a counselor. And, and the church really experienced just shockwaves because it came out that they were using their, the, what they did best, their listening skills and their counseling skills and their empathy skills to form a relationship that turned into an inappropriate relationship. And then that leader left his family and had an affair. And, and, and the ripple effects move through the congregation and, and the lampstand is moved. You know, the social scientists have an explanation for why aid workers would be capable of doing that or pastors could engage in that type of thing. It's called moral licensing. Anybody heard of that with a psych background, moral license? And we all do it to some extent. The idea goes like this. If I do a bunch of good stuff consistently, I volunteer in the nursery, I give sacrificially at church, I help 
old ladies cross the street. If I do enough of that, psychologically, I can start to believe that I do good, therefore I am good. And then I bump into a questionable area where I don't know if this is good or not, and, and moral license overrides me. And I say, this must be good because I'm good, because I do good. Another version of this, and one that probably explains the aid workers a little better, because at no time can you really look at exchanging aid for, for sexual favors and call that good, is something like this. I keep doing good, and I have accumulated such a wealth of good works my bank account of good stuff is so darn full that I know this is wrong, but I think I can afford it because you see, I have the currency of all this good stuff and really it becomes just a, have I done more good in my life than bad? Well, I could be doing a lot of bad stuff for the rest of my life based on how good I've been because I've been to 50 countries and I'm a humanitarian aid worker. And after all, why shouldn't there be some benefits for me? And after all, and it's a slippery, slippery slope. It's called moral licensing. Another kind of funny example of this it was a group of women. In a, in a case study, there was three groups of women in this psychological study, and they were to go in and buy cosmetics in a cosmetic store, and one was the test group, and, and they went in and they were given the option of buying cosmetics that were made eco-friendly, earth-friendly, and that cost more. Ladies, I assume you know about this. Lipstick that doesn't hurt the environment, I guess, costs a lot more. Or they could just buy the same product that wasn't earth-friendly and didn't have that little markup. And then there was two other groups. One group who was only allowed to buy the earth-friendly stuff, and one who was only allowed to buy the non-earth-friendly, cheaper stuff. And, and posted outside this cosmetic store was an old woman in need of help. And so with every woman that went in and bought the makeup, she had to then face on the way out this, this dear old woman who asked for some assistance. What the study revealed was fascinating. Disproportionately, the women who had just bought the eco-friendly stuff, who had just helped save the earth and environment and spent 30% more on their makeup, had very little interest in doing anything for the woman in need on the way out. Whereas... The women who bought the cheap stuff were like, all right, yeah, what do you need? You need my cell phone to make a call? Let's get you some uh, gift card. We'll, we'll take care of you. Isn't that interesting? That means that the way that sin works in the human heart is that when we do good, we are more likely to be at risk for justifying and rationalizing things that had we not done good 10 minutes ago would not even appeal to us as something that is permissible. I mean, think of the ramifications of that. Have you had a good Sunday at church? Let's say you didn't want to go to church, but you said, no, that's the right thing. Even if it's not there for me, even if I'm getting sick of hearing Mike's voice, I might be there for somebody else. And you greet a new person, and then you pray with someone who sees, seems to be hurt, and then you sign up for some kids ministry, even though you don't like kids, and you, you know, you give a little extra, and you just drive away from the parking lot of Mercy Road, and you're like, man, I just burned it for Jesus. Watch out. Moral licensing will say that you are higher at risk now for the rest of the day than you have been maybe all week. That is unless we apply the gospel to our lives. How do we do that? Well, the gospel says that the problem is so bad 
sin is so powerful in each one of us and the devil and the world, it's all dysfunctional enough that he had to die to fix all that. And that should humble us profoundly. And even though that's unpopular because we live in a self-esteem age and we never want to shame ourselves, and I agree with that, conviction itself is unpopular, but when we keep that cross in, in view and we say, it was bad enough he had to die, then that will help us weather the seasons where we're doing a lot of good stuff for other people and it will be kind of a protection against moral license. Because when we get to the point where it's like, after all, look at all the good stuff I've done, the cross comes into view and say, hey, hey, you could have done good stuff from the moment you were born to now, and you know you haven't, and that still wouldn't give you license to hurt other people made in the image of God, to make it all about you, to deceive other people, to gain power and status. And yet, if you stop there, you'd be really depressed all the time, and you'd be kind of like the, these Hindu widows who you're just trying to mourn and punish yourself. But the cross isn't complete without the empty tomb. With the empty tomb, we, we realize that God so loved us. Yes, he had to die and paid for us, but he did that out of love. And that empty tomb reminds us God doesn't just love us because he has to. He likes you. And he has good plans for you. And you're going to rise again with him on the other side of death. And he wants you to rise out of your little failures in this earthly life too. Experience little resurrection moments. And when we balance the cross and the empty tomb, we can now do good things, use our strengths, what God gave us to bring to the table, and give him the glory. That is, if we do enough self-searching and we're self-aware. So I'd like to end with the application. This now what? I don't think we have a slide for that. If you have your uh, note sheets, it's right here. These are just important questions, and we have extras at the exits. And I would challenge every one of us to ask these questions to ourselves. The first one is this. What are my primary strengths or resources? Now, you could take a spiritual gift assessment every day for the next 30 days and still not get through all the good spiritual gifts and strength finders and personality assessments. Do it. That's a worthwhile thing. But, but here's kind of a shortcut. Do you want to know what you bring to the table, your greatest gift and your greatest, greatest strength? Ask yourself, what do the people in my life depend on me for? You see, you know, it's like the, the guy or the gal who thinks she has the spiritual gift of singing, but nobody else has the spiritual gift of listening to her or him sing. Sometimes we're deceived about what our spiritual gift is for lots of reasons, because we've believed a lie that maybe the gift God has given us isn't a, a valid or a noble enough gift, or we've experienced some jealousy, or we had a parent that really wanted us to have a gift that we didn't have or a passion we didn't have. So in the midst of that confusion, just cut through to that and say, what have others validated in my life? Maybe you are an empathetic listener and you, you help people work through their issues. And so you find that people keep coming to you and saying, hey, could I talk? People just kind of see you as a safe person. Well, that's your gift, whether or not you want it to or not. Maybe, you know, you do feel like you're very successful in generating money. And it's actually somewhat hard for you to spend it all on yourself because you really have this sense that you want to see needs and meet needs. You're a giver and a provider. And you push that mission forward. And people seem to come to you in distress and say, because they know your heart and they know your abilities. If that is happening to you and others depend on you for that, you, you may just find that that is your gift. 
Maybe you're someone who is constantly searching for truth and you'll study and you'll research and you'll read the Bible and you'll pray and you'll work through that until you find clarity. And then when you find it, it's like you're gonna explode if you don't tell somebody else. You just have to share what you've learned. Well, you're, you're a teacher. God has given you that gift. So when, when you identify your strength or your primary resources, then the next question is this, what service do others depend on me? And that'll calibrate it. And then you say, why did I start doing that? Right in the beginning, why did I get into this? Why did I start nurturing all these people? Why did I start financially providing? Why did I start making beautiful music? Why did I start creating order and administrative predictability so that God's beautiful church could run, but in an orderly way? Why did I get into that? And then the harder question is, why am I still doing it? You see, because the gap between the why did I start and why am I still doing it, somewhere in that gap, you may just find out that you've engaged in a little mission drift. Your motivation, in other words, has shifted. It started out, you were just grieving for your husband. And that's right and proper. But seven years later, as you grieve, you found out that because you live in a Hindu culture, this kind of works for you. People think you're kind of shiny and special because you're so good at grieving. And it's become this unnatural thing that you do because it's less about doing it for the glory of God and it's much, much more about doing it because I like how I feel when I do it. On a real personal note for me, you know, when I was, uh, gosh, 29 or 30, I had had the privilege of riding kind of a wave of growth in a former congregation. And it was a co-lead model. I was a lead pastor, but I shared that with another, another pastor, 17 years my senior. And we didn't see eye to eye, and I ended up resigning. It was a really difficult season. It was hard for the church. It was hard for me. One of the hardest parts for me was this three-month gap before I took a job at a, another church where I had to admit to myself, though I started preaching because I wanted others to be captivated by God's word and I wanted their life to be changed and I wanted other people to see who Jesus was, somehow it has shifted for me. It had shifted for me into, I like what this does for me. I liked when people asked, how did you grow the church so fast? I liked when people would come up and say, how do you do all that multiple services without notes? And I had to come to the realization, like Revelations chapter two says, you're doing pretty good, but this one thing I have against you, you have forsaken your first love. And if you don't get back to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And so for me, what this looked like was entering into about two years of church work where I rarely ever preached. And in God's sense of humor, he made sure that I got to edit other people's sermons and generate ideas for other people's sermons. I was the editor on a teaching team of a large church. And it was like every day I'd go to work and the question was, do you do this for me, Mike? Is this about shining the light on Jesus or is it about you? Or another way to ask the question, am I using my gifts for God, for me, or a little bit of both? It's a hard question to ask yourself. 
next time you do the thing that you do to serve God and serve others, ask yourself, am I doing this for God? Am I doing this for me? Or a little bit of both? And I think if we're honest, almost all of us would have to say, because we're all in progress, a little bit of both. A little bit of both, God. Even, even I would say that. But by God's grace, he has a way of letting us have a distillation of our motives every day if we keep asking the question and keep giving it to him. Some of us, before it gets better, it has to get worse and a little painful, and we have to say to ourselves, you know, for years I've been doing this for me. I might have started doing it for God, but I really just like the way I feel when I write the blog post, when I get to be in charge of the ministry if you don't know if you're there or not, here's another powerful question. Would I be happy to give it up? Would I be willing to surrender my greatest strength and resource? Ari and I were talking about this. Obviously, Ari has just an amazing voice, and he can write choral ensembles and play any genre of music, and he's a passionate worship leader, and he, he was thoughtfully asking the question as we were talking about this material. I've thought about that a lot. He said, would I be willing to never sing again, to never lead worship again. If God redirected and redeployed me, said, no, I have a different gift, a different season. Now that's a tough one, Ari and I were talking about, because if you're operating in the way that God wired you up to operate and serve others, you should find great joy in that thing that you do better than other people because it's a gift that he gave you. And if you're glorifying God with it and that's taken away, of course there should be loss. But now here's where you get get to calibrate the type of loss. It's one thing to be disappointed, I tell my kids. It's another thing to throw a tantrum for nine months in a row because you didn't get to go to the movie. It's one thing to admit this is hard and I wish it would have turned out different. It's another thing to say that now that this is gone, who am I if I don't do this? As we ask these questions there's one question that animates all of them, and it's this, will I use my gifts to illuminate Jesus? Will I use whatever God put in me, entrusted me to have to illuminate Jesus, or will I use it to attain power and status or shine the light on me or shine the light on some other good thing but not an eternal, ultimate thing? As your pastor, I pray that this place, Mercy Road, is a community of people who will help you move towards a hearty yes to that question. I will use whatever you've given me, God, to shine the light on who you are for other people, for your sake and for your glory. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you invite us to be your lampstand, to shine the light on who you are in this hurting world. And we're to do that at work and at home and at church. Forgive us, we pray, for the times where we've moved the lampstand and we have not been all that interested in becoming like you, learning to think and act and feel like you, but instead we just tried to get people to think that we were like you. Forgive us for trying to obtain power or status through the gift that you gave us. Help us to be on guard. Protect us from the enemy who would be very eager and glad to use the gifts that you've given us to bring down the beauty of your church, the beauty of the plans that 
you have for our lives. For those who are discouraged when they hear this message or feel convicted that they have moved the lampstand, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would just take the shame that they're experiencing and just pull it right out and whisper to them, you are the very best of fathers. You understand how we are limited and how we're made. And you promise never to leave nor forsake us. Pray this in Jesus' name. If you would stand with us.